Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm in the Score Studios with co-host Joe Wolfon. Heidi ho Heidi ho Joe Woe. Well, that, What's going on? We are going to do some awards picks today, some mid-season awards picks, and I'm excited about it. It's also kind of crazy that I'm, I feel like every sports podcast says this around the midway point of the season, but it's crazy that we are halfway through the season already. It feels like just yesterday we were doing our season preview stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's just with everything in life, right? We're always somehow marveling at how quickly time is passing. Somehow, you know, I, you're what, 30? I'm 30. Yeah. I'm 32. We've been on this earth for three decades and haven't gotten used to the speed at which time passes. Yeah. And somehow I'm surprised that we're halfway through the season. Well, there's also that. I remember when I was a kid, like a teacher telling me about it. And I, I don't know the scientific evidence here, but it, it makes sense. Like the older you get, the quicker it feels like time goes by because right. everything that happens in your life is a smaller component of your overall life. So like yeah. when you're four, mm-hmm. a year going by or like an NBA season going by, it feels like it's the longest thing in the world. Yeah, that's But when you're 30, true an eight to 10 month NBA season flies by. I also have this theory that there's that sort of foundational period when there's learned behavior that you can never really unlearn um, when you're, I don't know what age you are, but it's when you're super young basically. And when you're that age, a year feels like an eternity. And so maybe you just never unlearn that feeling that like a year should feel like a really long time and it really is not. Well, that wraps up our psychology talk on this week's Pound the Rock. Now over to our midseason awards. Let's just dive right into it. I think we're going to go through all of the major awards from MVP right through to executive of the year. And then might even throw in a bonus award that I think fits the show. So let's start off the top. MVP. Give me your top three. I got Giannis number one. Um, Agreed. So he's a unanimous Pound the Rock midseason MVP. <laughs> wow. First ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I went with Harden number two okay. and LeBron number three. And obviously Doncic is the really tough omission there. I don't think anyone is really particularly close to that top four. And I think actually like Giannis to me was the easy pick and ordering the next three guys or deciding which one of those guys to leave off was kind of the tough part. I feel like Giannis should be the obvious pick here. The Bucks are 35 and six. They have a 14.1 net rating with him on the floor. He's been an absolute monster at both ends, and we can talk about the defensive end when we get into our defensive player of the year picks, I'm sure, but uh, at the offensive end, you look at what he was doing, and I, I know James Harden's scoring numbers really pop off the page, but if you look at the per 36 numbers, like what they're doing on a per minute basis, Giannis is scoring almost as much as Harden, and he's also grabbing 15 rebounds per 36. assists, uh, 1.4 steals, 1.2 blocks. He's the driving force behind what's been by far the best defense in the league. I I just think he's the obvious MVP at the halfway point. Yeah, he's averaging... You mentioned the per 36s and how his per minute numbers are actually similar to Harden on a scoring level. Even if you just forget the per 36 and the per minute... He's averaging 29.8 points, 12.8 rebounds, 5.5 assists, 1.2 steals, and 1.1 blocks in 31 minutes per game. Just under 31 minutes per game, actually, 30.9. So to put that in perspective, the only guys who have ever averaged 29 points, 12 rebounds, and 5 assists in a season were Wilt Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, and Elgin Baylor in the early to mid-60s. And that was before even steals and blocks were tracked. So I don't even know if those guys were averaging a steal and a block per game. The fact that he's doing it in 31 minutes per game... For a team that's on pace to win 70 games with a top five all-time point differential is absurd. And it, you know, to me, he's going, if everything continues on this track, he's going to be a unanimous MVP. Just even, and that's saying something because Harden has been historically good offensively. And yet we're still saying another guy is the unanimous MVP. Yeah, he's just a force that I don't really think that we've ever seen the likes of. Uh, just the way that he can impact the game, the, the number of different ways that he can impact the game, and the fact that pretty much everything that the Bucks do at both ends is driven by him and his capabilities, whether it's his ability to charge through multiple defenders and, and collapse a defense and create open shots on the perimeter, his ability to get to and finish at the rim time after time after time, even when defenses are loading up on him, uh, his ability to clinch defensive stops on the defensive glass and his ability to really make their deep drop back defensive scheme work 
because of like how he can be so many different places at once. And you know, whether it's as a help defender or an at rim defender and you know, at the offensive end, whether it's as a scorer or as a distributor, like, and I mean, we can talk about, I guess the limitations there and what he can't do as an offensive player. But the fact that he's shown the level of growth that he has as an outside shooter, the fact that he's shooting 32 and a half percent on over five attempts per game from beyond the arc that says something to me too, which is that he's not satisfied with you know the player that he was when he won MVP last season, and he's come back and added new wrinkles and gotten even better, I think, at both ends. So, so you had Harden 2 and LeBron 3. I think most people would have Harden 2. I actually had LeBron 2. That's fine. Like I think, and, and you could even throw Doncic into that mix. Like To yeah. me, he was, like there are some differentiating factors that led to me keeping him off the three-person ballot, but I think those three guys, you could pretty much put them in any order, and I wouldn't gripe too much about it. Yeah, LeBron's basically back to being a two-way beast on a pretty consistent nightly basis. I was shocked to realize that he is... Now, wh- whatever you feel about ESPN's defensive yeah. real plus minus, but for the most part, when you look at the list, it does make sense. Like the, it, For the most part, matches the eyeball test. Mm-hmm. LeBron's number one by a country mile in defensive real plus minus. And he has not been well regarded by that stat the last couple of years. So again, it does kind of match the eyeball test that he's back to playing defense consistently in the regular season. He's essentially averaging 25 points, 11 assists, and 8 rebounds with the number one defensive real plus minus for the best team in the West by a comfortable margin. And if you look at the top 10 Lakers by minutes, LeBron's on-off net rating is plus 14.9 per 100 possessions. No one else in that top 10 is even at plus 7.5. So he's almost doubling up the next best Laker in terms of on-off, who, by the way, is Alex Caruso. That's not a joke. (laughs) Uh, I think Alex Caruso actually is second in ESPN's defensive real plus minus. So if you want to take that stat with a grain of salt, then there's a pretty good reason to do so right there. But it's true. All the impact stats have adored LeBron this season. I think for good reason. Like, he, I mean, part of that is the fact that they really just don't have any other above average offensive initiators. And we can get into this with the Rockets too, because they have a similar thing going on with Harden and Westbrook. But basically, LeBron and AD on the floor together, the Lakers have been really good. With LeBron on the floor without AD, they've basically been equally good. And when AD's on the floor without LeBron, they have a negative scoring differential. And I think that's a little bit unfair to AD to to just kind of say that without context because the fact is when LeBron's not on the floor, AD is not really playing with anybody who's able to give him the ball in the right spots. But that also speaks to just the responsibility that LeBron is carrying as a guy who has to do everything to keep this offense humming. For a team that, as you said, is comfortably first in the West, they're thirty-three and seven, just a couple games behind the Bucks for the best record in the league. And you know, we talked about this before, but just the fact that that offense has worked as well as it has, given the sort of tenuous fit that, on paper at least, it looks like it should have. And LeBron has just been able to sort of tie all those parts together with his incredible vision, passing playmaking and and scoring and he's not scoring at quite the rate that he has done in the past but like you said he's still averaging 25 and a half points a game and comfortably leading the league in assists I think I'm fine with putting him at two I had him at three but again I think you know I'm not going to quibble with that order at all whether it's by roster construction flaws or whatever the case may be if he finds himself in a situation where he's the only dependable you know creator on the team that just speaks to his value anyway you know what I mean like right and how many guys could you say you're going to put them on a team and they're going to be the only dependable creator on that team and that team's going to reach the halfway point pace for like with 33 yeah. wins yeah 66 67 wins yeah so and I you know look Davis deserves a ton of credit for that um their role players have actually been really good uh their depth has held up a lot better than I would have expected it to so I'm not saying it's like LeBron is doing this by himself, but you know, you mentioned just sort of the on-off numbers and and how they've performed without him on the floor. Like he is by far the biggest driver of winning on this team right now. So, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about Anthony Davis because let's go to our defensive player of the year. Picks. You don't want to talk about Harden at all? Oh, you want to talk more? I feel like we. All right, what do you, what do you want to say about Harden? Well, I, I I'll just say I guess why I put him second over LeBron, which is that, um. Like, he is flat out carrying the Rockets. 
And I guess you could say LeBron's doing the same for the Lakers, but I think there's more complimentary talent on the Lakers than there is on the Rockets. And the fact is, like, Westbrook has been a lot better lately, I think, but I still wouldn't say that that experiment has been a success. Westbrook's still been really inefficient, and the Rockets have still been kind of a mess when he's on the floor without Harden. Um, I've mentioned Harden's post-defense before on this podcast. It's continued to be excellent, and that masks, I think, a lot of his other defensive deficiencies and really makes that Rockets switching scheme work. And then you have his counting stats, which uh, on a per 36-minute basis, 36.6 points, 6 rebounds, 7.3 assists, 1.7 steals. He's shooting 38% on 13.5 three-point attempts per game. He is attempting 12.4 free throws a game, shooting a career-best 54.4% from two-point range. He's got a 38% usage that's tops in the league, which um, is actually down from a couple of his previous seasons, but it's still pretty outrageous, especially considering that he has a 63.6% true shooting. Uh, this guy is an offense unto himself, and... And the thing is, like, defenses are really just turning themselves inside out, doing anything they possibly can just to make sure that he isn't the guy that kills them. In some cases, they're willingly playing three-on-four for, like, entire games. And that has allowed, I think, everybody else on that team to thrive in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. And he's made viable role players out of guys who, frankly, are not that skilled. And he has the rock at the 26-12, and second-ranked offense in the league, within spitting distance of the number two seed in the West, um, despite having no depth whatsoever. And and one last thing I'll say about Harden is that I think his durability gets overlooked a lot. The fact that the Rockets are so thin and are still thriving the way that they are is a tribute to the fact that he has missed just one game this season and is playing over 37 minutes a game. So that's a really important factor and I think something that should be taken into account when we think about MVP voting. 100%. I mean, I mentioned it a few weeks ago. Harden's going to go down as like the ultimate MVP runner-up because he was a top two or three in-season player for, we're going on what, since he got to Houston seven years now yeah. that he's been in that conversation. And it's a remarkable run of consistent excellence, consistently being elite, the top two or three guys in the MVP race every single freaking year. And he might end up with just one of them by the time he calls it quits, but that should not distract from the fact that he was in that conversation every damn year. And we don't need to harp on this too much because we've talked about it before and it gets talked about a lot, but just so often the conversation about Harden is about aesthetics, watchability, whether what he does and how he plays is good or bad for the game. And I, those conversations are fair game. Like, I, I'm not saying those aren't important conversations to have because aesthetics are a huge part of spectator sports. But I do think it's important that interspersed within that dialogue is, uh, you know, a conversation just about how ridiculously good this guy is because he's, he gets better every year and he's been un unreal this year. Well, despite how unreal his post defense is, he's actually not in our defensive player of the year conversation. So let's get to those. I had Anthony Davis as my defensive player of the year at the midseason point. Rudy Gobert, like Harden, always in the conversation for an, for this award. But he wins it. Yeah, but he actually wins it. Well, Harden won one. Yeah. Gobert's won two. Two, yeah, back to back. And then I've got Giannis third. You got any quibbles with that? I have Giannis number one. Wow. Yeah. And it's not just because I picked Giannis to win MVP and defensive player of the year at the start of the season. Um, I'll let you start with AD and then I can tell you why I have Giannis first. It, for me, it was between Davis and Gobert. And although Gobert's individual defensive numbers remain awesome, I, you can't hide from the fact that the Jazz as a team defensively have fallen off this year. They're still top 10, but they've fallen off from the elite level we're used to them being at. Whereas if you look at the Lakers, they're fourth in defense and... It's not all Anthony Davis. I think maybe the rest of the roster doesn't get enough credit defensively. And this is something I talked about at the beginning of the year, why I actually like this Lakers team. Like they've got Avery Bradley and Danny Green on the perimeter who can give LeBron some nights off defensively. LeBron's back to being a defensive juggernaut most nights. I mean, I mentioned he's number one in defensive RPM. Dwight Howard's had a great defensive year for them, but the anchor of it all is Anthony Davis. And I still think if you look at this team collectively, I think most people would be lying if they told you they saw this as a top five defensive team. And so much of it is because of Anthony Davis's work at the back, his ability to switch, his flexibility, just everything. He's been a defensive linchpin for probably the most surprising defensive team in the league and one that is elite on that end of the floor. So I, I had him edging out Gobert. I fully agree with everything you said. And I certainly did not see this as being a top five defense. I actually thought that this would be a below average defense coming into the year. And I do think that more than anything, that's a tribute to the work that Davis has done. 
And I, you know, I also agree that Dwight Howard has been borderline elite in his role. And I don't think that works if Davis can't handle the four defensively as well as he does. And, you know, I'll talk about this when I talk about Giannis too, but I, I just think there's so much value in having a guy who can both be that ace backline rim protector and help defender from the weak side and also just be an on-ball menace on the perimeter and can just sort of toggle between different roles, allowing a more of sort of like a straight rim protector to hang back and just simplify his role by staying near the rim and not really having to worry about anything except dropping back and and challenging and contesting shots. So, uh, yeah, that's I had AD two, and I think it's pretty close. But to me, I had Giannis because, as I mentioned off the top, the Bucks are by far the best defense in the league. They're two point two points per hundred possessions better at that end of the floor than the next closest team. I think Giannis has been the biggest part of that. I think Brooke Lopez deserves a ton of credit. And I was he, actually going to say flip a coin between Giannis and Brooke Lopez for number three on my ballot. And yeah, he he narrowly missed my ballot. Um, but Giannis, to me, uh, just like I was saying with with Davis, it's like he can do anything that you need him to do. And the Bucks have actually the Bucks have been playing him at the five a little bit more than they have in the past. And they've been killing teams in those minutes, which is actually a departure because the past couple seasons, as much as you know, there's this conversation about downsizing and how they could be so much more flexible with, with Giannis at the five because, you know, he can switch and you don't need to drop back and you can basically take away any kind of shot that you want. That hasn't really been the case until this season. Um, but they've been excellent in the minutes with him at the five, but they've been equally excellent in the minutes with him at the four playing alongside Brooke or Robin Lopez. Um, they have a 98.8 defensive rating with him on the floor by the numbers. He's been the best at-rim defender in the league. 43.8 defensive field goal percentage inside the restricted area. And again, the Bucks just kind of lapping the field in team defense. And, and with him being, I think, the biggest driver of that, uh, I had to put him number one. Some of the metrics, actually, I was looking at last night. So Davis and Gobert are 1-2 in the defending shots overall metric on NBA.com, where uh, it's not just at the rim, it's in general, the shots you defend and then looking at what your opponent shoots compared to their averages. Anyway, Davis is one, Gobert's two there. They're both forcing guys to shoot about eight percentage points worse than their regular averages. Brooke Lopez, number one in defensive field goal percentage at the rim among guys who have defended at least five shots there. So why Giannis isn't number one in that Mm -hmm. list. And then defensive plays per foul, which is something I've talked about in previous years, which is steals plus blocks divided by personal fouls. Not, you know, the most intense stat, but I always like it because the ability... The Kawhi Leonard stat. The Kawhi Leonard stat, yeah. The ability to affect the game defensively without harming your team fouling the opposition is a huge skill to have when we're talking about defensive players. So, yeah, we joke around and call it the Kawhi Leonard stat because he's dominant in that area. But one guy who's actually been top two the last three years and is number one in that area this year, Jimmy Butler. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I... Butler's been good defensively. I don't think he has been elite. Right. I wouldn't I, like he didn't sniff my top three. Yeah. Um. He's he's definitely been excellent. Um. The the guy who was the narrowest miss on my ballot was Embiid, and the thing with Embiid is like his numbers actually defending shots at the rim haven't been particularly impressive, but as a deterrent of opponent shots at the rim, he's basically been the most impactful player in the league. Um. You want talk about the Embiid injury before we get to rookie of the year yeah sure so uh he quite grotesquely dislocated a finger on his non-shooting hand and had to have surgery for a torn ligament is he, he came back to play in that game yeah which I think you know in hindsight obviously short sighted, a pretty big mistake I don't know if that made it worse or not but ultimately he's going to be out for a period of weeks I wrote a story about this basically about how I feel like the Sixers are better equipped to deal with his absence than they have really ever been and if you look at the, their on-off numbers, this is actually the first year of Embiid's entire career that they've had a positive scoring margin without him on the floor. Obviously, I think that was a big reason why they went out and got Al Horford in the offseason, just because they got absolutely slaughtered in the minutes with him on the bench last year. And I don't think anything epitomized that better than that series against the Raptors. Game 7 especially. Game 7, what, three minutes with him on the bench? They were a minus 12? Yeah. Um, that cost them the series. They were a plus In a series 90. they lost on a buzzer beater. Plus 90. Plus 90 with him on the floor in that seven-game series that they lost. And another thing with Horford, like he, 
he just hasn't really gotten to be himself at all on this team. And, you know, there's that story where he was kind of, I wouldn't say he was griping about it necessarily, but he was talking about trying to find his rhythm and his role within that offense. Because with Embiid, who is a ball-dominant player, you don't really think of big guys typically as being ball-dominant players, but Embiid actually is because he, he sucks up a lot of possessions and holds the ball for quite a long time when he gets it in the post. Horford typically is not really getting to explore the skill set that makes him so unique offensively. With with him and Embiid on the floor together, he has a 10% usage rate. 10%. Um, so I think this is an opportunity for him to spread his wings a little bit at that end of the floor. It's an opportunity for Ben Simmons, I think, to play in a bit more space, which we saw against the Pacers last night, even though they ended up losing that game and he had a pretty poor second half, was a monster in the first half, just attacking in transition and attacking seams in the Pacers' defense because the floor is like a little bit more open without Embiid there. Um, and I know they're, they're one and two now. They, they won that game against the Celtics and then lost to the Mavs and the Pacers, but ultimately I think they're going to be okay during this period. They have a soft I was going to say, not, a, the, not the toughest January schedule either. It's going to get tough. They, they have the next four games are, I think, Nets, Bulls, Knicks, and then Nets again. And then it's going to get tough again for them. But um, I think they're going to be like, they're going to be able to tread water uh, at least in a way that they haven't necessarily been able to do in the past. Yeah. So I agree with that. And I read your piece last week, great piece on how the Sixers, I guess, will look to survive without Embiid and why they can't survive. And I agree with everything you wrote in there and everything you just said. And like I said, I don't think their January schedule is that tough. When he went down and they said he'd be out for at least a couple of weeks, I looked at the rest of their January schedule and figured they can go about five and five in that stretch, mm-hmm. which without your best player, that's you know more than fine. I think a Ben Simmons-Al Horford pairing with three-point shooting and defense around them is more than enough to survive in the short term. The issue, though, is that I don't want to say they've dug themselves a hole because they're still nine or ten games over 500. That's not a hole. But when they were considered you know, in the category of the Bucks, where it was kind of like finals or bust. And if not finals or bust, at the very least, very competitive Eastern Conference finals or bust. And they've got these championship aspirations. And everyone, not everyone, because I think we gave credit to some other East teams, but a lot of people thought it was like Milwaukee, Philly, huge gap, everyone else in the East. And now you're sitting there at sixth in the East at the midway point of the season. And you're without Embiid. That's where, you know, like surviving and thriving are two very different things. And I think they can survive without Embiid in the short term. I don't think they can thrive. And when you're already down to sixth in the East and like nine games back in Milwaukee, like you're not catching Milwaukee. So the ceiling at this point is... Nobody's catching Milwaukee though. But that's what I'm saying. So the ceiling for Philly is now two, but even that is going to start feeling out of reach if all they do is survive rather than thrive without Embiid. And I don't think you can ask them to thrive. So I think they might be in trouble. I think as long as they can get to three, which again is, is certainly no guarantee, but if they can get to three, I'll still feel pretty good about their chances to get to the conference finals. Um, obviously, if they wind up in the four or five, then suddenly they're in Milwaukee's bracket and are going to have to play them in the second round, potentially, if they can even get out of the first round, which again is no guarantee because the top six in the East is tough. And if they're opening on the road against a team like Boston or Toronto or Miami. Like, th- there's no guarantee Indiana to me. Indiana with Oladipo back? Like. Yeah. And that's... And I think this benefits probably Milwaukee more than any team because I do still think that Philly is going to be the toughest team for Milwaukee to get through if they are to make the finals this year. And I think there's a chance that Milwaukee might not have to see Philadelphia in the playoffs because... I mean, there are, there are other teams in the East that match up pretty well against Philly, Toronto being one of them. Um, and I think, you know, Indiana, if fully healthy, if Oladipo is the guy that we have seen the past couple of seasons before his injury, I think they're going to be a tough out for Philly as well. I, I, don't think, um, I don't think that there's any guarantee that we wind up seeing that series in the playoffs this year, which would have been crazy to say at the start of the season. Yep. By the way, the Sixers are four games back in the loss column of the third place heat. And again, that's still with Embiid at least another week or maybe two away, yeah. if not more. So it's going to get dicey. There will be a lot of questions to be asked in Philly if things continue down this road. All right, let's get back to our awards picks. Rookie of the year. Let's start with you. Uh, John Morant. John Morant. Yep. John Morant. Great, because my uh, rookie of the year ballot went Ja. 
who cares and who cares? <laughs> it's Ja. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just like, yeah, you can throw names like Kendrick Nunn out there and like... Uh, can you really though? <laughs> I, talk about like Eric Pascal, I guess, and even Terrence Davis in Toronto. Like there are a few rookies who have had nice seasons and made, you know, in in none yeah. and Davis's case made an impact for I, really successful teams. If we're talking about the all like, rookie team, sure. Yeah. Like there's nobody else is in this conversation, so I don't even think it's worth talking about. Um I mean John Morant is worth talking about because he's insanely good. You know, for me at least coming in, I kind of expected him to be this really exciting but very raw player who made a lot of mistakes, turned the ball over a ton, had some just incredible highlight reel plays, but didn't necessarily drive winning because rookie point guards pretty much never do. But like his ability to control a game, um, his intelligence, like the way that he's able to run a pick and roll, his body control, even though, you know, we've talked about his sort of reckless rim attacks and his dangerous and scary landings, but he still has unbelievable ball control and like his ability to change directions like he is one of the most explosive guys in the league moving horizontally, I think. And that just makes him so difficult to track when he's attacking in space. And then, you know, despite the fact that he is moving at full throttle almost all the time, I think he finishes really effectively around the rim. And also, I mean, he's done it at a pretty low volume, but the fact that he's shooting close to 40% from three is unbelievable. I'm honestly struggling to remember a time I've been this impressed by a rookie point guard. Um, yeah, uh, Dame maybe. Yeah, but even Dame, like it was, he was impressive. He was scoring a lot, but d- like it took a while for his playmaking chops to catch up. I think yeah, to his no, scoring chops. Whereas I think for Morant, like the playmaking chops are already there and in full evidence almost every game. And you know, not only that, but like he has this Grizzlies team in a playoff spot yeah. right now. The stuff you talked about, like the poise, is something I was mentioning even watching him early in the season. Is that he plays with a poise, not just beyond his years, but beyond his speed. You know what I mean? And be, like point guards that play like this, young point guards in general, usually struggle. It's hard to be a point guard in the NBA as a 19, 20-year-old, Jaws mm-hmm. 20. Point guards that play at the speed he plays at, with the relentlessness he plays at, and with the downright recklessness he plays at sometimes with the way he attacks the rim, point guards that play like that, ball handlers that play like that, Almost, they're guaranteed to struggle their first couple of years. Struggle to be efficient, struggle to manage a game, struggle to run an offense, struggle to understand the concepts of NBA defense. Ja doesn't seem to struggle with any of that. In fact, he looks like he's starting to master it with each passing game. It's incredible to watch. 18 points and 7 assists on 48-39-80 shooting, while being the best player at 20 years old on a Grizzlies team in a playoff spot in the Western freaking conference. And I know the West... The bottom has Doesn't fallen. Doesn't mean what it used right. to, but the, the bottom has fallen out of the West playoff race. I understand that the Grizzlies right now are on pace for thirty-seven wins. But you know what? Even if you just don't consider where the seeding is, if someone had told you that a twenty-year-old rookie point guard would have the Grizzlies in position to win thirty-five to forty games in the Western Conference, just look at the fact that you know the Grizzlies are in that spot over the San Antonio Spurs, the Portland Trailblazers, these teams with a ton of institutional knowledge, continuity, veteran savvy, and the Grizzlies are this kind of hodgepodge collection of pretty raw, inexperienced players, and Morant is making it all work, Um, and I'm really excited to see what his career looks like, and I just hope that he can avoid any kind of serious injury, which, I mean, if you look at Russell Westbrook, maybe that's a good sort of precedent for a player who can play that way and still manage to remain mostly healthy throughout his career. Unless Patrick Beverly has something to say about it. Yeah. Um, but I agree. Like one, one of the absolute most exciting rookie point guards that we've seen, honestly, in our lifetime. Yeah. Um, I'm saying so. that's what I'm saying. Like Dame's the only guy I can even think about being this impressive, even close to being this impressive as a rookie point guard in recent memory. Yeah. Well, and let, do you consider Doncic a point guard, I guess, would be the question. Yeah, good point. But I I do, but I don't. Like, I consider him a point forward, right? Like yeah. it, He plays exclusively point guard on offense, so much different kind of player. But right. Uh, uh, yeah. 
I guess um, in like the pure point guard um, size wise, maybe like traditional definition of the right. position, maybe. Yeah, but regardless, we don't have to qualify it in any right. way. He's having an unbelievable season. He's the clear rookie of the year. He's going to win this award unanimously, unless Zion comes back and just goes totally ballistic and. I guess, drives the Pelicans into a playoff spot in the second half. Like, that's the only way I can see this not being a unanimous award for Morant. And I wouldn't put that past Zion if we didn't already know that he's going to be on a a minutes restriction when he comes back, right? So, Jaw was on a minutes restriction starting the season, though, so. Yeah, true. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Let's move on. Most improved player. I'll start us off on this one. I've got Devontae Graham. Okay. Bam Adebayo and Shea Gilgis-Alexander are my two, three. You can flip-flop them however you want. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I have a clear number one. And And it's not any of those three guys. Exactly. That's interesting. I think Devontae Graham should be the unanimous most improved player. He's my number two, but... I don't think I I have ever seen an NBA player improve as much in my lifetime as Devonte graham did from his rookie year to his sophomore year pascal siakam last his leap last year and his overall improvement over the last couple of years has been like generational it's been special bam and shea are better players than Devonte graham they play for better teams than Devonte graham but i think one thing to remember is that this is not the best player out of the improved players award, it is the most improved player. And I don't think you can make the case, although you're apparently going to in a couple minutes, for anyone but Devontae Graham. This guy last year averaged 4.7 points, 2.6 assists, and 1.4 rebounds in 15 minutes per game. He's now at 18.6 points, 7.7 assists, 3.7 rebounds. He's playing 35 minutes per game. He went from a 28% three-point shooter on 2.6 attempts to 38% on nine attempts in one year. He's still a sub-40% shooter overall, which is obviously concerning. But 36% yeah, from two-point Not range. great. Not great, Bob. But overall, I don't think I've ever seen this kind of improvement year to year from a guy. And I think it'd be crazy to give the award to anyone else at this point. So now you make the case for your incorrect most improved player pick. <laughs> All right. Well, before I do, I'll just say about Devonte. I had him number two on my ballot. I think I said on a previous episode that I don't think I had watched a single minute of his NBA career before this year. Um, granted, that was only less than 700 minutes that he played last season for a, a not particularly inspiring Hornets team. But um, I think it's incredible what he's done. I just think like his growth has come in a couple very specific areas. Obviously, it's the three-point shooting. And you mentioned the numbers. Like he's shooting 39% on insane volume, a lot of them off the dribble. And I think he's paired that with some really nice playmaking touch. And the fact that he is now such a threat to pull up has opened things up and allowed him to expand his his game as a pick-and-roll playmaker. You can make an outside case for him as an all-star in the East. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there in large part because of what I just said, 36% inside right. the arc. And I think it's just become... I won't say easy, but like defenses know how to play him now, which is that if you can run him off of the arc, he's almost always looking to pass out of the drive. You can play him for the pass, and if he continues all the way to the rim, he really struggles to finish at the rim. He's got to develop a floater. He does. But yeah, his his in-between game is is severely lacking. Um, And and that doesn't take away from how impressive he's been and the, the impressive leap that he has taken. And it also doesn't take away from the fact that the Hornets have been, I think, almost 11 points better with him 11 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor than with him off. That said, Luka Doncic is my runaway most improved player. And I think, I certainly think you could argue that in terms of total skill development and 
the actual jump that has been made in terms of going from point A to B, like you can say that there's been a bigger journey or a bigger leap made by Devontae Graham. I think the leap that Doncic has made is miles more significant in terms of, I mean, you take a guy who was probably on the fringes of like the top 30 in the NBA last year, had a very impressive rookie season, no doubt. But for him to have gone from being that player to being a guy who we're talking about as being essentially the number four MVP right. candidate. Top five player in the world. Behind three all-timers. Running the entirety of the best offense in the NBA. Everything runs through him. I mean, he orchestrates every aspect of that Mavericks offense. And right now, that offense is better than the Houston Rockets offense. Like, it, it's truly insane. And I just think that that jump is is more meaningful than going from I mean not that like it isn't meaningful especially for a Hornets team that like really needed something to latch onto in the wake of Kemba's departure but like to to go from being you know like a fringe rotation player to being a borderline all-star that's incredible to go from being what Doncic was as a rookie to being a legitimate MVP candidate in his second year is something that aside from LeBron James I can't remember ever seeing in a player's second year I agree with you that Doncic's improvement is more significant. It's more important in the grand scheme of the NBA, and it's going to factor in more this season and beyond. I still think going from a top 30-ish player to a top 5 player in one year, as incredible as that is, and as monumental as that is, and as important as it's going to be going forward, is not as striking to me as going for Like, you mentioned a fringe rotation player. Like, if, if we had legitimate rankings of every single player in the NBA, Devontae Graham last year is probably in like the 400 range, and that is not hyperbole. And now, while I don't think he's an all-star, I think you could make a case for him being like on the periphery of it. And I think going from like the 400th best player in the NBA to what, maybe top 50 this year? Even top maybe. 60, mm-hmm. I think is kind of batshit crazy. I still think that making the leap from where Doncic was to where he is now is a more difficult leap to make. And I, I, I got to just read out these numbers too because we didn't really talk about him in the MVP discussion and I He's think he does, he does belong there. But um, on a per 36-minute basis, 32 points, almost 11 rebounds, 10 assists, I don't even 60% think- true shooting. Uh, and that's despite the fact that he's been pretty pedestrian shooting the three ball. And like I said, like he just orchestrates everything for that offense. And and his passing, where would you say he ranks as a passer in the NBA right now? Like he's top three in my opinion and yeah. maybe number one. He's up there with LeBron. LeBron, Jokic. I think Doncic and LeBron are in a class of their own as pure playmakers. And Doncic, like he kind of came ready-made with that skill set. Like he was a, a visionary passer when he entered the league. But I think just like the way that he's manipulating defenses this year is is something completely different and obviously like the passing is a huge part of it and the number of different passing options that he's able to exploit like when he's running that pick and roll he has the threat of that sling pass to the corner the lob going over top the pocket pass but then he's also just advanced so much as a scorer and a guy going downhill who has become so unbelievably difficult to stop like he is blowing by guys he is getting guys on his hip and putting them in jail and hitting floaters. Like, he is finishing to a ridiculous degree around the rim and shooting almost 60% from two-point range. Like, it's a staggering leap that he has made, in my opinion. And I think, you know, Devontae Graham is a a worthy inclusion in this conversation. Uh, And like I said, I have him second on my ballot, but to me, uh, Doncic is the guy. All right, hit me with your sixth man of the year. Dennis Schroeder. Nice. I think he's been a really big part of the Thunder's success this year. Um, you wrote about it in that piece that you wrote about the Thunder. A lot of people have actually written about that that three-point guard look that has just killed teams with him, SGA, and Chris Paul. And I had Lou Williams number two. Um, his counting stats are a little bit more impressive than Schroeder's, but not by that much. And I think the big difference between those guys is I think Schroeder has actually been pretty solid at the defensive end. Not just like not a liability. He's a vastly improved defender. I think he's actually been good defensively. He's working really hard. He's got really active hands. 
and he's actually kind of like mucking it up and blowing stuff up rather than just being you know a bystander who's essentially ball watching and hunting for steals like he's been active and engaged and well, sorry to interrupt but one yeah one thing i mentioned in that okc piece and it's like such a simple concept but one of the reasons teams actually aren't having the success targeting gallinari that they usually are defensively is because in those three-point guard looks the thunder are using all that speed they have on the perimeter to send like quick doubles to whoever's targeting gallo and it's schroeder especially who's then kind of doing you know, like the Fred Van Vliet thing of being the little guy who goes in and digs on a big man. And these seemingly easy opportunities to target Gallinari are not so easy because you've got Schroeder and these other smaller guards flying around out there. And they've been almost 13 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. You know, offensively, he's shown a lot more polish. He's, I think, pared down his shot selection to the point that it's become a lot more idealized. Uh, On a per 36-minute basis, you're looking at 21.4 points, 4.2 assists, shooting 35% from three, which is a career best. I'm going to start calling you Mr. Per 36. Well, I just, I think it's like a way to contextualize those numbers. Like you could, I could say per hundred possessions, which would actually be a more accurate way to do it. But I don't think those numbers actually mean anything to anybody. Like if you hear the per hundred possession numbers, they sound like Someone's averaging like 48 and 10. Yeah, they seem completely off the charts. But I think if you sort of standardize it at per 36, it's like, oh, if a guy was playing essentially Three quarters of the game. A superstar's workload, then this is what his numbers would look like. Um, So I think that's generally a pretty accurate reading. Now, not a lot of guys really play 36 minutes a game anymore. So maybe a handful of guys do. I do it because that number is there on like basketball reference as just like a publicly available stat that you can easily look up. I would be in favor of them changing that to per 32 minutes because I feel yeah. like that's maybe a more accurate uh, account of how many minutes people play these days. Meet but. in the middle and go per 34. It's like that scene <laughs> in The Irishman. Sure. 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That's yeah. meet in the middle. Say 12 and a half. <laughs> I've never seen a guy play 32 minutes in my life. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I just think Schroeder's been great and um, has been a, a really big and underrated part of the Thunder's success. So to me... He's the sixth man of the year. All right. You mentioned his regular on-off number. So I had Schroeder number two on my ballot, but I, I did want to point out this because it's astounding. The Thunder's starting lineup of Chris Paul, Terrence Ferguson, Gallinari, Gilgis Alexander, and Steven Adams has a net rating of minus 2.9 per 100 possessions. Obviously not great. That same lineup, but with Schroeder in for Terrence Ferguson, goes from minus 2.9 to plus 31.4. It is the number one big minute lineup in the NBA, lineups that have played at least 100 minutes. If you look at the last two seasons and qualify lineups that have had to play at least 100 minutes together, it's still number one just ahead of the Warriors' death lineup when they had KD and Iguodala. Obviously, that's insanely impressive, so it doesn't really need to be contextualized. Because, again, that's a big-minute lineup that, like you said, is outscoring teams by 32 points per 100 possessions. But when you do look at the on-off stuff, I guess it is important to note that Terrence Ferguson has been not great this season. So when you are replacing Terrence Ferguson in a lineup with a lot of other really talented players, then perhaps it should be obvious that your on-off numbers are going to look a little bit inflated. Um, 34 points per 100 possessions inflated. Yeah, but that's, but that's absurd. And I think... I mean, look, if the Thunder wanted to look for an upgrade this season rather than just sort of selling off parts, there's a really easy upgrade for them to make, which is on the wing, right? Like they, I think Hamadou Diallo has been pretty good. And if he was, you know, their, their three guy coming off of the bench, then that would be fine. But starting Terrence Ferguson when, like that starting lineup could be really, really effective if they had like a legitimate three essentially between SGA and Gallinari as opposed to Ferguson. So. I'd probably pick them to win a round in the playoffs if they had that. Wow. They're good, man. They're good, They're yeah. Good. But so are those other teams in the West. But, I mean, I guess it depends on yeah. who they could get. Like, if they right. could somehow find a way to get Robert Covington, say, um, I would like this team a lot. Yeah. So who who what what did your six-man ballot look like? Schroeder, two. Lou Williams, three. Montrose Harrell, number one. Yeah. Um, Harrell's... That's, to be honest, I think that... Out of the the awards we've gone through so far, I think this might have been actually the toughest one for me to distinguish between one, two, and three. I think I had a clear-cut top three, mm-hmm. but distinguishing who was one, who was two, who was three is tough. So here's my reasoning for it. I started off looking at Harold and Lou because they play on the same team. So first, I have to differentiate between the two of them. 
They have similar numbers. You know, Lou, the assists are higher. Obviously, Harold, the rebounds are higher position because of the positions they play. Scoring-wise, both pretty good. This was what I thought was interesting. Harold's played only 13 minutes more than Lou Williams. They played almost the exact same amount of minutes. They play most of their minutes together. It's like the instances... Hard to distinguish between right. those two guys. And yet, this kind of shocked me. Montrezl Harrell has an on-off net of plus four per possessions. Lou Williams, minus 3.2. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say... Like, it's obviously not the be-all, end-all. There's some noise in there. Maybe Harrell played with some stronger lineups here, and Lou played with some weaker ones there. But I think when two guys have played so many minutes together, such similar minutes, on the same team, with similar numbers, and yet one guy's on-off is more than seven points per 100 possessions different, when everything else is so equal in an awards race, and I'm literally looking for anything to distinguish one guy, that did give Harrell the edge for me. And then, so then it became Harrell versus Schroeder, Harrell is putting up slightly more prolific numbers on a more efficient basis. And I get that some of that is just, you know, his usage is lower. Positionally, it makes sense that Harrell's going to be more efficient because he's, you know, working inside as opposed to Schroeder on the perimeter. But again, when when it was just so, too close to call, those were the reasons I went with Harrell first over Lou and then eventually over Schroeder. But I really don't think you can go wrong with all any three of those guys. Yeah, I think that's totally fine. And ordinarily in that case, when you're looking at you know, sort of separating two guys who are basically involved in two-man actions all the time, I would give the nod to the guy who is the, the playmaker. playmaker. Yeah. And I do think Lou Williams has had a lot to do with Harold's success in the pick and roll. But I think Harold's actually grown his game to the point that he's not quite as dependent a scorer as you would think. And he's actually able to get a lot of his own offense just sort of posting up. He's got really nice touch around the basket. He's got a, like a really reliable push shot. I don't think it's like his success has just come entirely, you know, as a result of the playmaking that Lou Williams provides to him. But... I did go with Lou ahead of him, but I, I don't have any issue um, with with Harold being ahead of him either. And I think um, there was really only one super tough omission for me from that top three, and that was George Hill. And if you look at like the way that he has shot the ball this season, his impact metrics, he's been ridiculous, and he's been up over fifty percent from three all year long. And uh, it's just, it's like kind of crazy the efficiency that he's been putting up, like near 70% true shooting. And his on off numbers have been absolutely great. And he's a big part of the reason that the Bucks have been so good without Giannis on the floor this season. Who's your coach of the year? Nick Nurse. Same. Unanimous. And not just because we're sitting here in Toronto. Like if, if you haven't been paying attention to the defending champions this year, Almost every important piece has missed, not just a game here, a game there, like significant time. They went through a recent stretch where they were without Pascal Siakam, Marcus Saul, Fred Van Vliet, and Norman Powell. Earlier in the year, they were without Kyle Lowry, Serge Ibaka, and Matt Thomas, which, whatever, but Lowry and Ibaka missed, you know, a chunk of the season. Like, it's absurd the injuries they've had to deal with after losing the finals MVP, Kawhi Leonard, and Danny Green, and yet here they stand at... 25 and 14. 25 and 14 on pace for 50 plus wins. It's hard for me to go with anyone but Nick Nurse. Even like the creative ways he solved some of the problems. The only thing standing in the way of Nick Nurse when he coached the year right now is Patrick McCaw. Because he has a very strange <laughs> An obsession. An unhealthy obsession yeah. with Patrick McCaw, yes. Uh, the, the thing that really hammered home just how snake-bitten the Raptors have been this year, they played the Blazers about a month apart. Once in Portland and once back in Toronto. And the second time they played them, which was uh, about, what, a week ago now? They had an entirely different starting five than they had the first time they played them. Not a single player who started the first game against the Blazers started that second game. And it was entirely because of injuries. Injuries that they had in the first game when Lowry and Ibaka were out. And in the second game when Gasol... Van Vliet and Powell were all out, and Siakam as well. The attrition that he has had to deal with, the way that he has gotten that team essentially to overcome the absences that they've had, plug different guys in, and find solutions that work, this isn't just a case to me of him kind of mixing and matching, juggling his rotation, getting the most out of his players, though he's done all of that. It's the ingenuity in his schemes. the Which willing- other coaches are now emulating, by the way. Yeah. The willingness to try new things, the different defensive looks that he's thrown at teams, uh, the different offensive looks that he's thrown at teams, and not all of it works. You know, you mentioned Pat McCaw. 
Um, there's some other stuff that has been, you know, somewhat questionable at times. I think uh, there was that game against the Rockets, and I kind of mentioned this before with with uh, James Harden in my MVP section. But like, I wasn't crazy about the fact that they essentially stuck with that blitz Harden at half court with two guys every single possession and play three on four from there on out. I think ultimately that sort of came back to burn them, and you can argue about the efficacy of that scheme, but. The point is that, like, he has used this regular season, despite all the adversity that that team has faced, to try and figure out what works. And I think it's hard to argue with the results in that, like you said, the team is 25 and 14. Um, what is fifth in the Eastern Conference right now? Conference? Fourth. Fourth in the Eastern Conference, you know, uh, on pace to nab home court advantage in the first round, despite the time that their stars have missed. Uh, it's. It's pretty staggering, and I think he deserves an immense amount of credit for that. Yeah, we talked about Philly falling to sixth because the East is more competitive than we thought, and they haven't been playing well, and now in B turn, and then the Raptors are here with all these injuries and all these subtractions from the lineup, and they're still in a spot for home court. The number three spot for me in the coach of year ballot was a toss-up between Brad Stevens, Eric Spolstra, Nate McMillan, Billy Donovan, and Rick Carlisle, but my number two, Mike Budenholzer. And I had... I had- Spolstra two and Bud three. Yeah, the one thing I'll say about Budenholzer, I've been critical as a, a lot of other people have about his inability to adapt in game in a series in the playoffs. And you know the jury's still out there. He's going to have to prove that this year once springtime comes. But I don't agree with punishing a guy. First of all, for a regular season award when you're talking about playoff stuff, but also I don't agree with punishing a guy who won it last year and revolutionized a team last year just because that's team is still excelling and more so than ever this team's on pace for 70 wins and they're blowing the shit out of teams to disqualify him simply because he won it last year i think would be an injustice and i think he would be the first coach to win it in back-to-back years i think you might so, be right it's it's crazy to think like they lose brogdon they come back as a team that on paper i think is worse than they were last year they're relying on like what 39 year old kyle corver west matthews who certainly looked like he was on the downswing for the last couple of years, um, Dante DiVincenzo, like George Hill, as Dante I mentioned, DiVincenzo has been great. By the way, he absolutely has. He's defensively been, as well. He's been outstanding. Uh, I know we, you know, we heaped praise on Giannis and gave him so much credit for for getting this team to where it is. But I think Bud deserves a ton of credit in his own right for a designing that defensive scheme that has been historically great as an interior defensive team in terms of both limiting shots at the rim and defending those shots at the rim. This is like the best defensive team that we've seen at least since those Indiana Pacers teams that were anchored by Roy Hibbert um, and realistically better than that. So um, I think Bud deserves credit for, for installing that scheme for just instilling the organizing principles that have made their offense hum as well as it has, despite the fact that they don't have a ton of secondary creation. I had him number three behind Spolster, but I could easily bump him up to number two. I just think Spolster has done such a good job with, without the benefit of having a player like Giannis who can essentially make anything work at either end of the floor. Spolster, I think, has had to rely a little bit more on, you know, more complex offensive and defensive schemes, uh, a lot of ball and player movement, um, just team concepts that I think are a little bit difficult, more difficult to install. They play a ton of zone defense. Um and the fact that they have been as good as they have been. Like, I saw Miami being like a 44-45 win team maybe this season. And the fact that they're on pace to blow past 50 wins, I think, is, is a real credit to Spolstra. All right, five to ten minutes left. We've got two awards. One legitimate one, one self-created one. Executive of the year. Hit me. Pat Riley. Unanimous. <laughs> um, I think we did our awards predictions before the season started, right? And we both said the... I, I don't know who you gave that award to in the Clippers I, front I office. Like Lawrence Frank slash, or Michael Winger. Slash Jerry West. Yeah. Um, and I think, I don't know, like how, how are we supposed to approach this, right? Because if we said at the start of the season, the Clippers front office should win this award for how they have remade this team and essentially turned them into a championship favorite with their offseason moves, why are we now knocking them out of the top spot? It's... And, and I guess the, the reason would be that things in Miami have worked out better than I could have expected. And, and marginal moves like picking up Kendrick Nunn, like adding Duncan Robinson, drafting Tyler Hero, getting Jimmy Butler. Like all of this stuff now looks better 
than it did at the start of the season. Whereas with the Clippers, I don't really put this on the front office. Like the fact that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard have barely played together and the fact that the Clippers have been maybe a little bit disappointing, particularly at the defensive end of the floor. This is the same team that we were lauding praise on at the start of the season. And I think they still have the most upside of any team. And I would still pick them to win the championship if you were asking me today. I I guess I think... My feeling about it is there's a higher degree of difficulty to what Riley did with a capped out team, you know, to bring Jimmy Butler in with a sign and trade and then to make those kind of moves on the margins that have worked out so well. I just think that's a little bit more difficult than the Clippers front office essentially compiling a bunch of assets and getting a deal done for Paul George after Kawhi Leonard told them that he wanted to join their team. Yeah, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that I think... (laughs) I don't think it, it shouldn't factor in, but I don't think signing a superstar free agent should be should weigh as much as it does, actually, in executive of the year voting. And the reason I say that is because there are a lot of instances, LeBron James last year is a perfect example, where I'm sorry, but Rob Palenka and at the time Magic Johnson had almost zero to do with LeBron James wanting to play for the Lakers. And there are certain times, and you know, the Clippers are probably a good example where... Yeah, Kawhi just wanted to play in LA, but the infrastructure that they had built up over the previous couple years probably aided in their quest for Kawhi Leonard, right? Whereas there are a lot of times where a guy just wants to be in a market and it has nothing to do with the executive team's skill or performance. So I think trades, I think drafting, I think acquisitions like that, creative, cap like maneuvering, all that to me is more impressive than just being able to convince, you know, the best players to play in LA or Miami or wherever the Mm -hmm. case may be. But you could also say that the Heat wouldn't have been capped out in the first place if they hadn't given out all those bad contracts in 2016. 100%. But to his credit, Pat Riley has gotten them out of it. He landed that star when a lot of people thought, what are you doing? You're like, you're nowhere close to contention. And, you know, I argued at the time, like Pat Riley knows what stars mean in this league and just getting one in a market like Miami, you know, in a culture like the Heats is the start of something. And I think that's proven true as the first half of this season comes to an end. And all of a sudden, you're starting to hear those Giannis whispers in 2021 that, you know, they will be a team that's in the mix. And absolutely they will because it's Miami and they already have a star in place and they have Pat Riley and blah, blah, blah. Like, I think Pat Riley for me is is the guy... I think you have to give some credit to Rob Palenka, even though I think it's kind of a joke. They've already extended and promoted him. <laughs> Look, to his credit, even the AD trade, like AD just wanted to be there. And well, it remains to be seen whether they gave up too much for him. You know, we'll see whether they get the ring or not. But some of his lower level moves, I think maybe didn't get enough credit at the time. Getting Avery Bradley, signing Danny Green, even Dwight Howard not on a non-guaranteed contract. Like all those things add up. Another guy I think deserves a lot of credit is Kevin Pritchard. Like if you look at... The, the way that that Pacers team has been able to not only survive, but thrive without Oladipo playing a single minute this season. And the moves that he made this offseason have everything to do with that. Uh, going out and getting Malcolm Brogdon, who's been spectacular. Signing Jeremy Lamb, who's provided them a really nice you know secondary creator. TJ Warren has been excellent for this team and I think has made great strides at the defensive end of the floor. But also like you know, where this team failed last year when Oladipo went down was they just didn't have nearly enough individual shot creation. And now you look up and down the roster and like they have a lot of guys who can create their own shot between Warren, Lamb, Brogdon, even Aaron Holiday to a certain extent. Like, I think that front office has done a really nice job laying the groundwork for Oladipo's return. And I mean, even without him, they're essentially on pace to win 50 games, which I just think is phenomenally impressive. And uh, another reason why I think Nate McMillan still doesn't get enough credit uh, for his coaching job he's done in Indiana. And he was probably the toughest omission for my coaching ballot as well. Him and Frank Vogel. Yeah. uh, I think Pritchard's done a terrific job. Uh, I still think, you know, Lawrence Frank, Michael Winger, Jerry West, whoever you want to credit in the Clippers front office, deserves a ton of praise for the way that they have crafted a championship contender. And um, other guys, uh, Sam Presti, I think it's it's tricky with him because so much of what he did has to do with the future and not necessarily this season. But the fact that the the Thunder are still competitive this year, while considerably brightening their long term outlook, I think is worthy of a lot of praise as well. Masai Ujiri. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, what did Masai really do this off season though? Maxed like, out Siakam, found yeah. Terrence Davis undrafted. 
True. Um, Ronda Hollis, Jeff, yeah, the Stanley Johnson signing not yeah. looking great, but the Ronde signing actually looks good. I just don't think those moves are quite as high. Giving Lowry as, one more year. <laughs> yeah, no, those are all good moves. But if you look at just like how it's impacted this season alone, I don't, I don't think that those are as high impact moves as the ones that we've talked about. Dennis Lindsay in Utah, which is weird because the because biggest his biggest move, move hasn't worked out hasn't at worked all. Worked out, yeah, in Conley, but then the bogey, the Bogdanovich yeah, move has been unbelievable. Great, yeah. Um, Zachary Kleiman in Memphis. Yeah. Does um, anyone even know who Zachary Kleiman is? Like, if we showed everyone a picture of Zachary Kleiman, even NBA diehards probably wouldn't know that's the Grizzlies' current GM. Yeah. Well, you asked me a couple episodes ago if I knew who the Grizzlies' right, head coach was. Because I'm, again, confident that a lot of, like, pretty big NBA fans would not be able to tell you who Taylor Jenkins is. And he might be on the fringes of the Coach of the Year yeah. conversation, honestly. All right. Last one. First half of the season, Clown of the Year. <laughs> Joe Wolfon, we've got maybe like two or three minutes. So in a minute or two at the most, give me your clown of the first half season. Clown of the half season so far is Magic Johnson. Okay. Not even in the league and he's still getting clowned. I got to put him here purely on the strength of his coming out of the woodwork to say that he deserves credit for where the Lakers are right now. The exact quote is, this team would not be in the position it's in without me. This was my strategy. This is what I thought we'd be in three years. Which, again, this is where he thought they'd be in three years, but they're there right now. So what? <laughs> okay. I knew we were on the right track. Everybody wanted to do it their way, but I'm good with who I am. I think people respect what I've done for the team. And just to briefly recap, last year's Lakers were a tire fire. Magic Johnson essentially fell flat on his face with his very public attempts to leverage Anthony Davis's trade request and then walked away from the team without telling his boss, flamed the organization on his way out with a public interview, and now that the team is thriving, he wants to take credit with some Mark Jackson can't praise the butterfly without crediting the caterpillar shit. Get out of here, man. Like, just please go back to tweeting incredibly bland, trite stuff about the NBA on a nightly basis and leave well enough alone. I like it. My clown of the first half, I think everyone expects me to go with James Dolan, but I've clowned him enough already that there's no element of surprise. Wow, you have clown fatigue with James Dolan. Unbelievable. Yeah. Not even Ernie Grunfeld got to clown fatigue. (laughs) status with me and that's saying something having said that my clown of the first half bulls head coach jim boylan okay i've clowned him a little bit over the last year and a half since he took the job but the thing with jim boylan is he's wholly unqualified for his job he is completely out of his element as an nba head coach and yet he says things and does things like almost like to make it feel or make you feel like he's still the smartest guy in the room when really everyone in that room knows this guy has no business being in said room. So like a couple of examples, there was one game early in the year where he rode with this all bench lineup really long and it cost the Bulls the game. And then he ended up coming out after the game and defending it by saying, well, it's all part of a master plan of how he's trying to develop a bench in Chicago, which is the dumbest (laughs) crap I've ever heard. You don't develop benches in the NBA. No coach in their right mind is thinking, I'm going to develop an all-bench lineup for later this year that we can go to. If you end up kind of stumbling into one and it works and you ride it out, that's fine. But no one, no executive is thinking, let's cobble these pieces together so that they can help us build an all-bench lineup eight months from now. Like, no, that's just bullcrap. That's an example of Jim Boylan not being able to say, you know what, yeah, I made a mistake. It's him saying, well, actually, I'm smarter than you. Here's what I'm really doing. Another example, there's been a couple examples this year where they've run out of timeouts with a little bit of the game still left in tight games. And again, instead of Boylan saying, you know, maybe I'll have to work on my time on management or that's something we're going to look at. No, what Jim Boylan says is, actually, we practice this in practice. We prepare to not have timeouts, specifically for like scenarios like this. Again, it's like, no, man, you made a mistake. You shouldn't have the job you have. You're not smarter than anyone. Stop trying to convince us otherwise. Didn't he get an extension? Yeah. The Bulls are ridiculous. The entire Bulls are a clown show. Yeah. Garpak's got to be in the running for this award Oh, my as well. God. There are got per- some down-ballot votes. They're a clown of the decade material. But the one thing I will say about Boylan, and I actually hesitated before I gave him this award, is that did you see the footage of a couple of weeks ago, a fan in Chicago as Boylan's walking off the 
the court after another loss, yelling out that he is a clown and should be fired. <laughs> and Jim Boylan turns around and looks at this guy, and he doesn't even look angry. He looks so sad and like oh, he's about man. to cry. And it made me feel bad for a little bit. And then I remembered he's getting a lot of money to be a head coach in the NBA, a position which he has no business holding. So I don't actually feel that bad. You know, it should never get personal. But what I'll say is, does this pound the rock? Clown the rock. Clown the rock. It's never personal. It's just business. (laughs) To quote a famous line from The Godfather. And Jim Boylan, I'm sorry, but business being business, you're a clown as an NBA head coach. (laughs) And you are my clown of the first half season. That seems like a good place to leave off. Let's leave it there. Let's leave this clown car of the first half season behind and cruise into the second half of the season. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.